one of the greatest desires, I believe, on the heart of, of leadership here at Gateway is that we would know that we are loved, that the Father loves us passionately, sacrificially, scandalously. And from that place of knowing that he loves us, we are transformed, and then we can then love. When we attempt to love and become, when we are not basking in his love, we soon burn out. We can, it can develop into performance. There are so many things can happen. And we can only love when we know that he has first loved us. And it's not just a head knowledge. It's, it's something that happens that bridges that gap, and we are suddenly enraptured by the realization of how much he loves us. And in that moment, everything else falls away as far as having to do. We sing about it frequently, songs like the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. Or your love never fails, never gives up, and never runs out on me. It overwhelms and satisfies my soul. It's higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant through the trial and the change and death in life. I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. And one of my favorites penned almost 100 years ago, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky, O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. So many songs we sing about God's love, and today I want to share a story where Jesus paints a scandalously beautiful picture of the love of God. We look at the Old Testament sometimes and we're confused by the portrayal we see of God there. And we feel ourselves pulling away from this God. And I would challenge us to consider that the God of the Old Testament is, something, is a picture of God that he was willing to be presented of himself in order to walk the walk, walk the path and make it possible for us to become sons and daughters and we know that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God and he is but he also tells a story in Luke that paints for us a beautiful picture of his love I want to set the scene and in setting the scene I want to transport us back in our minds to first century Israel and I want us we're going to get attempt to get in the hearts and in the minds of those who are witnessing this painting of this picture okay we're going to set, if you want to, you can turn to Luke 15. And in the opening of Luke 15, we find out that the Pharisees are grumbling that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Brian alluded to that, what he shared, how people criticize Jesus for hanging out with those of ill repute. So we have right here, we have these, these tax collectors, these, and these tax collectors and sinners, and we have Pharisees and scribes. And these two groups do not like each other. And that is one of the strongest understatements that I will probably ever make. They couldn't stand each other. They hated each other. They could not be in the same room. There was no love lost between these. For the Pharisees, they had religious and political region, reasons for this. Number one, they were very, very strict in following religious codes. They were so strict. There's a verse in the Old Testament that you can't cook a goat in its mother's milk, so they would avoid eating milk, meat, and cheese together. But they could not even sit at a table with someone who was eating meat if they were eating cheese, lest their thoughts mix and they were defiled and they break the command. 
So they could not eat with sinners because if their thoughts mixed, they themselves would become defiled. Plus in this culture, meals took on covenantal significance. We can eat with someone, it's no big deal. But for them, eating with someone signified a connection with that person stronger than what we really understand. So they had these religious reasons. But they also had political reasons. The tax collectors were the Benedict Arnolds of first century Israel. To invite a tax collector into your home or to go into the home of a tax collector would be similar to a Jew of the mid-20th century inviting a Nazi into their home and fellowshipping with them in the middle of Germany. It was unheard of. And they had these political reasons that these two hate each other. And so they're grumbling about this. And Jesus answers them with one parable, not three. It's one parable. And I like to consider this as one parable with three acts, with the final act having two scenes. And... I'm not going to go into the first two except for the first two acts portray or show heaven's understanding of repentance that's different than, than most of us really have grasped. We've, we have here at Gate, we have moved away from this repentance being this beating the chest, crying and just feeling self-deprecating and beating and realizing repentance really is a changing of the mind. But in these two parables, Jesus presents in the first two acts of this play Jesus presents repentance as the act of being found. There is nothing on the part of the sheep. The sheep, when sheep are lost, they're completely helpless. They cannot move. But the shepherd found it. And a lost coin is an inanimate object. The sheep and the coin did nothing that we would understand as repentance. They made no move toward being found. Yet Jesus said, this is how heaven, when they celebrated Jesus, this is how heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Jesus is likening a sinner repentant to a, a lost sheep or an inanimate object being found. And then he opens up, and I'm gonna, the third act tells a powerful story, like I said, of a scandalously beautiful picture of the love of God. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before I die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said... At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father, and I'll say, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his father said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening when we celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Well, your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, 
But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you've told me. And in all that time, you never even gave me a young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, and you celebrate by killing a fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. The younger son makes an outlandish, unheard of request of his father. There were guidelines on how property could be divided up and passed on and transferred, but it was guidelines were for the father to do, and he was rarely, he rarely if ever did it while he was still in good health. It was to be done while he was in his dying days, and it would take place after he was dead. But the idea of a son asking his father for this is dishonoring. It's unthinkable. And his father would have been expected to explode in anger. Even He would have even been right and okay in that day to beat his son for such a request. But he didn't. The father grants the request. In the previous two acts of this play, the shepherd did nothing out of the ordinary going and looking for a sheep. It was nothing that would have been considered all that odd that if you lose a sheep, especially when in common in that day, a couple shepherds would take care of all the village sheep, not just their own. So he didn't know if the sheep was his or somebody else's, but it was, it was somewhat expected. And the woman searching for a coin. I mean, how many of you have you spent days looking for that $20 bill you know you had in your pocket and you can't figure out if you spent it or you lost it? Nothing out of the ordinary. But this father does something completely out of the ordinary. It's an extraordinary divine act that he does in just granting the son's request. The father is demonstrating that he's willing in granting freedom. He's willing to be rejected. And it's in, his re- it's in the son's rejection of his father's love that he makes the requests. But it's because of the father's costly love that he grants it. Now, dividing the property is one thing. That can, we, can, we can make the guidelines as, okay, this son gets this, this is what's going to happen. But disposing of is an entirely different matter. Jewish law was set up such that the father would decide, he would, he would divide the property, but the son couldn't dispose of it. It remained in the father's possession, okay? So if the father divided it, the son couldn't do anything with it because it was in his father's possession, and the father couldn't do anything with it because it technically belonged to his son. If the father decided to, decided to sell this, it would go back to his son upon his death. If the son decided to sell the son could not sell it because it was still in his father's possession, so just we see that he divided the property, but not only that, the son was able to extract from his father the permission to sell it, to get rid of it, to dispose of the property completely so that he could then use it for what he wanted. Now, while we haven't been introduced technically to all three characters we have, we've been introduced to the father, and we've been introduced to the younger son. And in the background, we still have the older son because... In their culture, the oldest male of both members was expected to mediate these types of affairs. And it would have been expected, if you're in that crowd, you're expecting the son to defend his father's honor by denying that that even happened. If this older son wouldn't, wouldn't submit or wouldn't be okay, if he wouldn't acquiesce, give in to this, dividing the property, it couldn't happen. So they would have expected the older son, no, there is no way. Father, you're not going to divide this property. I don't want this done until you're dead. He was expected to do that, but he doesn't. So we learn of the son by what he requests. We learn 
about what the father's like by what he grants, and we learn what the older son is like by what he refuses to do. So we've been introduced now to all three characters in this play. The son is able to dispose of his inheritance rather quickly than he really needs to. He says not many days later, usually these things take time, but he's able to do it in a matter of days and get going. And the hostility of the crowd, not only on his request, that he disposed of the inheritance, and he did it so quickly. If you think of something you have of great worth, unless you're really lucky, people start at the lowest bid. And it takes time to get to where he probably sold it for, for less than it's worth. I'm speculating there, obviously, because we don't know. But we do know that he sold it quickly. And he left, but he left with a sword hanging over his head. And that sword was known as a katsetsa ceremony. This is a cutting-off ceremony. They would put court parched corn and nuts in a jar and then break the jar in the presence of the community. And while they're breaking it, they say, this person, whatever their name was, is cut off from his inheritance, cut off from his community. So this is a humiliating ceremony that would be done that's hanging over his head. So we have the prodigal who sold all his land, he sold his life, he sold his inheritance. Broke off communication, complete relationship with his father, and he goes off into a far country with the proceeds of that sale. If he returns, and it is possible that he can return and rebuy the inheritance and be restored. So if he returns and rebuys the inheritance, not, there's not much lost. He can get right back into his rest. He can be restored to his son. But how is the village going to act if he loses that money and worse, loses it among Gentiles? If they don't enact that cutting off ceremony when they left, they're going to do it now. The son knows that he has to succeed. He cannot fail. There's, there's no coming back for the son. He goes on his way and he squanders his money. Interestingly, the the, in this part of the play, the playwright, Jesus, the narrator, doesn't tell us how he did it. That's the, the older son's conjecture. We don't, it just says reckless living, and we don't really know. But he squanders it and loses all. Now, if you think about it, in today's society, if my son goes on a venture and asks for some money and goes and loses it, he can come back. And there's not that much lost. We want our children to come back. when they, we, we're, we're, we have open arms, and there's no big... It's not that... There's not the honor-shame culture here that we, the Middle East has. In the Middle East, a son is indoctrinated to avoid shame at all costs. And he cannot, cannot, and will not face shame. And, so if, and if he returns, he's going to be subject to public humiliation and shame. First of all, because he failed in the eyes of his father. Second, because he's going to be a burden on his brother. Now that the property's divided, he's disposed it. The rest of the estate, anything that accrues in value, is to his brother's benefit. He owns nothing, nothing that nothing's going to, so he'll be a burden on his brother. Third, in the eyes of the community, he's dishonored his father, and that, that ketsatsa ceremony awaits him. So he hires him out to a Gentile, and he ends up feeding pigs. Now this phrase, hires him out, means he joined himself. Basically, he found somebody who could feed him and latched onto him. And just stuck, stuck right to him because he's going to get fed. But he not only hired himself out to a Gentile, not only is he feeding pigs, in essence, he wishes he were a pig. He's longing for the food they're eating. Now, if you ever fed pigs what they, well, nowadays they feed them with grain, but if you go back a couple centuries, it's, it's slop. Yeah. Now, this is the play that the, Jesus, the playwright, is describing. So let's think about the audience for a moment, the scribes and the Pharisees. This is who Jesus is telling this play to. At this point in the story, 
They're quite pleased with Jesus' description of sin. It fits theirs quite well. The way they felt about the younger son right now is exactly the way any righteous person should feel about someone who has sinned. It's repulsive, disgusting. So they agree with Jesus' depiction of sin right now. So let's go back to the story. We're going to go back and forth between audience and the play, if you're okay. We're going to kind of see what's going on in the, in, in the audience's mind. It says that he came to himself. Now, we have traditionally, I say traditionally, I don't know how traditionally, but what I've been taught was that this was his first act of repentance, that he came to his senses. But is he really repenting? Okay. For one thing, that phrase that it came to his senses is also found in Luke 18 in the parable of the persistent widow. Remember the widow keeps knocking on the door of the judge, keep trying to get the judge to, to, do, to get, get justice for her, and he finally comes to himself, says to himself, and it's the same phrase, is, this, is the judge repenting? No, the judge is like, get this woman off my back. Fine, I'll do this, I'll get her off my back. And we see here this son is really scheming. There's no remorse here. He's like, wait a minute here, what am I doing? I'm working for this guy, and I'm starving. I could go home, and I could work for my dad and at least I wouldn't be starving. Sounds like a plan. But in order for me to do that, I'll at least tell him I'm sorry for what I did. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll get that out of the way, and, I'll, and then I'll hire it on, and then I can get fed. See, his problem right now is he's starving. He's not really showing any, he's not regretful. He's not having regret. So his, his, his decision to return home isn't born of repentance. It's born of the fact that he's, he's hungry, he's starving. And if I'm going to work for this guy or the other, I'll work for the one who's got food, who's going to feed me. Jesus is raising a powerful issue here. Is the primary relationship between us, or a believer, and God, that of a servant before a master? Or a child in an unbroken fellowship with a compassionate parent? You know, there are three categories of people that serve God. There are those who have a slave mindset. They're afraid of punishment. They're afraid of curses. They're afraid that whatever, if they do something wrong, God's going to lower that anvil, and they're going to get punished somehow. There is also can be, and I've, I think we're, we're, all, we're somewhat familiar with this, is this idea that I'm an employee getting paid. I've done all this for God, and this is how he treats me. What's the point? Now, I realize that tragedies are, shake our faith, okay? But uh, in, this, in this, this whole, this, what I want to present here is this idea that, that we would have the audacity to say, I've served him faithfully. Why is he treating me this way and walk away? I'm not... I'm not criticizing or calling into question those times that we are honest with God in our dialogue, okay? But when we honestly believe God has no right to treat us this way because we work for him so faithfully. Look at that guy over there who's living, done, doing whatever he wants, and he's got everything he needs. He's not, and here I am, everything happened to me. What's the point of serving God if this is what I'm going to get out of it? So those are two, but you also have a son who serves because he loves and because he's loved, not expecting anything returned. He's in a relationship, and he does what his father wants because his heart is connected to his father. Now, the son says, I am no longer, in his rehearsed speech, I'm no longer worthy. That can have never again, or it can also have the connotation of, well, not just yet. Leaving open the possibility that son is thinking, I could go back, I could work for my dad. He'll hire me, I'll make some money, and I can save some money, and after a while, I can pay him back the inheritance, and I can earn my way back into the family. That's that, that, that no longer could be a, I'm not worthy to be called your son yet, but hire me on as a servant. 
Okay? Now, let's check in with the audience again, the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus has now represented their idea of the solution very well. Their idea of sin was represented, and this son's speech, that's the right speech, if you want. That represented their idea of restoration authentically. So they're into this story. They're fully engaged, okay? They're in full agreement with the picture Jesus is painting so far. They like it. And sometimes I wonder, wonder if they're thinking, maybe this guy isn't who we thought he was. I don't know. But they're quite confident of the ending. The boy's going to return. He's going to give this speech. He's going to be treated by that badly by the town. They're all going to scorn him. They're going to do this cutting off ceremony. And he's going to finally get to his dad's house. He's probably going to grovel around and apologize and weep and beat his chest and just say, I'm not, and go through that rehearsed speech. And his father, after some time, is going to say, well, sure, I'll hire you. And he won't live with his father. He'll live somewhere else, but he'll work there. And then... As he earns the money, years and years later, after he's worked hard, saved his money, then he can come to his father and buy back his inheritance. So they've got this all figured out. Have you ever been in a, watched a movie and you got it all figured out, then all of a sudden, whoa, that was an ending that I wasn't expecting? Well, that's what the audience is in for right now. Because the father sees him from a distance. Now, distance in this verse is the same word as he went to a distant country. So while the son is physically closer there is still distance in their relationship. And the words that Luke chose indicate there is still distance between them. Now, we tend to picture this as this sprawling land, and the father's in this huge estate on a hill, and he goes out on his porch every now and then and looks, scans the hillside to see his son. Well, that's not exactly how it was. Nobody lived out in the countryside in first century Israel. It was too dangerous. They may have farmed out there, but they stayed in the village. They lived in the village. And then they would go outside the walls to farm or to, to do things they needed to do. But they lived in the village. And the villages were about six acres. And I was just asking Butch about the size of this land. And so it was probably it's a little bit bigger than the land that Gateway owns. Okay, I don't know if it's four or five acres here. But six acres, the typical village size. And it was, the streets were about five, six, seven feet wide. In fact, they were so narrow, there was a law against taking food to your neighbor on the Sabbath. So they would get over, around that by throwing food from roof to roof, or they would put a plank across and walk across. Okay. So the streets were really narrow, but they're also filled with a lot of transaction and things going on. There's lots of busyness there. So the father, if you think about the thing about the father in a house in town, now he may have, because he was wealthy, a lot of wealth, a lot of, um, first, a lot of the noblemen would have, may have had two-story houses. So he may have had a house that was somewhat elevated. But I want you to picture a crowded village where friends are out talking, business is being transacted, camels are moving loaded loads from place to place within the village, and the father is searching this crowd for his son. Have you ever looked for someone in a crowd, you know you're supposed to meet someone, and it's crowded, and you're, you're looking at every single face? The father is searching through this crowd. Is that my son? Is that my son? When he walks like him, just scanning constantly, intent on finding his son, on seeing his son. We also, can you imagine the son realizing this, facing this, having to walk through that crowd to get to his father's house, to get to his father, coming into the village, seeing their stairs and their criticism, feeling have you ever felt someone scorn? And they're not saying anything. And you, you, you feel it. And imagine feel him feeling all of the scorn of the entire village. 
Now, let me take a moment here to describe this a Middle Eastern patriarch. Well, let me back up here. I was talking about the father. The father is searching the crowd because he knows that he alone can save his son from the hostility of the crowd, that he is the only one that can protect his son from the scorn, the condemnation, the humiliation that the village is going to heap upon him. He's the only one. So he must reach his son before his son reaches the village. He has to get to his son so he lays the foundation of what the son's treatment return home will look like. So he sets that. And once he sets it, nobody else can change it. He's the one that's been offended. He has the freedom and liberty to set what restoration is going to look like. So he is every day, I believe, it doesn't say every day, but he is scanning that crowd on a regular basis, searching every new face for the face of his son. He knows he's probably going to fail. And he knows the only way he's going to come back is if he's pretty destitute. It's like he doesn't even know if he's going to recognize his son because he left wealthy. He's going to come back destitute. You know what that kind of stuff does to someone? It ages them overnight. He's searching. Now, now, let me describe a Middle Eastern patriarch. Remember, Israel, all these stories took place in the Middle East. These are all Middle Eastern people with a Middle Eastern culture. A Middle Eastern patriarch was expected to uphold the honor of his family. He must exhibit indignation and anger. Once he realized that the money was gone and that it was gone on, spent on with Gentiles, that he was working with Gentiles, he has a full right to have absolutely nothing to do with this boy. But another thing about Middle Eastern noblemen, they do not run. They don't run. Running necessitates pulling up one's robes, and that exposes the legs, which is a shameful thing to do in public. It is so indoctrinated in their culture that Middle Eastern men do not run that it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that Arabic translators could translate that verse as run. They could not, in their culture, fathom that this father would actually be running. They translated Hastings. He presented himself. He hurried. He went. It wasn't until about the 1860s where they finally were able to realize or translate that part of the verse as run because Middle Eastern men simply do not run. It was too humiliating, too shameful. It's not done. But God, but God is not like a Middle Eastern patriarch. He didn't want to wait to son to reach him, but he ran to him. It's probably daylight because he sees his son and the father's been watching, expecting him return and he knows that he has to reach him first. And he doesn't care at all if reaching him first means he's going to have to behave in a very undignified manner. It doesn't matter if he's going to humiliate himself. He doesn't care. All he cares about is his son's coming, son coming home. And I want you to picture the father running through these streets, gathering his robes up, running through the streets, tripping over stuff that's left on the ground, bumping into people, running into people, stepping into camel dung, intent on getting to his son first. Completely humiliating, completely undignified. And then when he gets him to him, the son would be expected to kiss his father's feet. But that's not what happens. The, son, the father doesn't even wait. He throws his arm around him and kisses him, a, sign, a sign of acceptance and approval. 
All of the cultural norms of a Middle Eastern patriarch in the face of what this son has done are completely thrown out the window. This father doesn't care what cultural norms are. And whenever I, now, when I realized this, what running meant, and I pictured this in my mind, that's all I can see whenever I see any, hear any song about Jesus, God leaving his throne. That song, Grace, you've shown me grace by leaving your throne. Jesus, you have won me. I can just, I can picture the Father racing through crowded streets, running into people, running through camel dung, running, just that, just that intent, one focus on his mind. He wants to restore me. He wants to restore you. And I see that, I hear that, every, I see that picture in my mind whenever we sing it, any song like that. He is going to run through that gauntlet so a son doesn't have to. And this is a picture of the father leaving his throne in front of all the principalities and powers and heavenly realms. He made a spectacle of himself in a powerful display of self-emptying love to restore us. He was willing to be undignified to restore us to himself. Now the father didn't go out in search of his son but he allowed him to come to an end of himself because he knew when he came to the end of himself, he would be there. And when he came to the end of himself and approached the village, the father initiated restoration. Brad Jersak says, the cruciform God will not and cannot, by love's nature, coerce us to obey. He grants us the dignity and the discomfort of finding our own bottom, knowing when we arrive there, we will find his arms open wide, waiting to restore us to what? To sonship, to himself. The son, like I said, if you can picture him running through this, he has this, he sees the father running towards him, and he has this rehearsed speech. And the audience, okay, the audience, the audience knows what his rehearsed speech, so they're like, they're undone already by this scandalous picture of what the, I can see their hackles just the hair on their neck just raised. That God doesn't act like that. But they're waiting for this rehearsed speech. They know that this is going to come. So, okay, then the father's going to... And he starts the speech, but he's not even able to finish. At this point in time, when he starts the speech, we don't know really what's going on inside the heart of the son. But we do know there was no remorse when he planned the speech. Think about this. Think about what the son is planning on doing. He's got this rehearsed speech wanting to earn his way back. The idea of earning what you're back for rejected love or anything cheapens the gift. The idea that we could in any way earn God's love when he came on the cross, when he humiliated himself, cheapens the gift. The only, the only thing that we can offer is just a response to that kind of love. There's, there's not... It, Whatever we think that we can do or we try to do puts a value on what God did and what Jesus did and, and thereby cheapens it, brings it down to our level. So he, go, he starts his speech, but it's like the father interrupts him because he never gets to that part. If you look at the, compare the two, he never gets to that part. Let me just, can you just hire me? He never gets to that part. It's like the father interrupts him. And the father immediately restores his son to the family. Puts the robe on. A robe signifies he's back in his royalty again. He's a nobleman again. He puts a ring on his finger. It's the ring that they would transact business. He retained in that instant, before he, anything, he, he was completely restored as a son. Completely restored. He didn't do, have to do anything. Now in the play is where we have other witnesses come on stage. So there are other people that are coming on stage, and this is where he tells people, go get the robe, go get this, we're going to have a party. 
The father wants witnesses. For one, the son could think he wondered what his motives are if it's private. Now, the rejection of his father's love and his father granting their quest, that was probably done in private. But this humiliating, costly display of his love was done completely in public. And then he brings these people in. The father wants witnesses because once everybody sees that the father has restored him, nobody can treat him otherwise. They are obligated now to treat him as a son. Nobody can say, wait a minute, what about the cutting off ceremony? Because the one that's been offended is the one that's offered forgiveness. The one that's been offended has restored him, and there's nobody else in that village now that has any right, legal right or otherwise, to say, wait a minute, here, we've got to do this. They don't have it anymore. The father has stripped him, stripped the entire village of any idea of punishment or getting back. This really speaks powerfully to this idea of us forgiving because we've been forgiven. If he's released, if God has released, if someone's committed offense against me and God has released that offense, what right do I have to, to hang on to it? I don't have any right anymore. This costly love is visible and the prodigal son is transformed. Now, um, so Act 3, Scene 1 is done. And in the poetic structure of the... Um, the way Luke was, I was going to say Hebrew, but it was, it was not Hebrew, it was Greek, but there's a, there's a poetic structure, it's, and it's called a chiasm. And just to make a long story short, that scene one is finished, and it's the implication is the sun is restored. And, and so it's not left hanging, it's tied up in a nice, neat bow. The younger son is restored to his family. It's done. Act, two, act three, scene two, is finished. And the Pharisees' complaint was, this guy eats with sinners. And Jesus is saying, you accuse me of eating with sinners. You're right, I do. I do it all the time. But I don't just allow them to eat with me. I don't only invite them. I'm like a good shepherd who searches for the lost sheep. I'm the good woman who looks for a lost coin. And I'm like this father who runs through the streets to welcome my children home. No matter what they've done. I will go out with costly love, seeking those whom you despise. And I'm willing to pay any price. I'm willing to humiliate myself. I'm willing to act in an undignified manner to bring them home to eat with me. They have just had the rug. They've just had the rug pulled out from under them. Their, the, their idea of what was going to take place for restoration did not happen. That's God's view of love. That's, Jesus is presenting a view of God's love that they had no grid for. But he's not done with them yet. The story isn't over yet. He's still speaking to the Pharisees. And now the curtain parts on scene two, act three, scene two. There are quite a few parallels between the older and younger son that become clear as we look into the story. In every religious culture, there are insiders and there are outsiders. There are insiders who live their lives in the church, they follow the rules, they hear the stories, they live good Christian lives. But then they, they either, and I, with or without a religious attitude, we, we see the religious attitude of the older son, and, and we're going we're gonna to discuss that. But how many, of, how many people have I talked to, I don't know, how many of you know people who have spent their entire lives in the church, they've done what God asked them to do, they've lived godly, righteous lives, but they still feel distant from the Father. So there are insiders, and then there are outsiders 
who buck all the rules, who have to do their own thing, who leave to the chagrin of the insiders. And I don't know, am I the only person that thought, do I have to become a prodigal to find that intimacy with the father? Do I have to go out and do drugs and, and, and do all that kind of stuff so that when I come back, I can be restored and have an intimate relationship? Because the stories that I've heard, it seems like the outsiders are the ones that experience it. And we look at that verse, he forgives much, loves much. Is that what that means? That means that I have to, I don't really think that's what it means. I think it's our awareness of what we're forgiven. But I don't know, I don't, I hope, I don't think I'm the only one that struggles with this idea. Do I need to become a prodigal in order to be able to find an intimate relationship with the Lord? So now we're coming to the insider. It starts off by saying the older son was in the field. I like to, to, to present the possibility that the playwright, Jesus, put that there to show that the older son was also at a distance. The older son wasn't really close to his father either. Now, when his son come, the older son comes in, the expected response, the audience's respect, what the, the respectable thing for the older son to do was come in, greet the guest, then politely ask to be excused, go clean himself up and come back. But he doesn't do that. He humiliates his son, his father, by refusing to enter the party. Now, let's, let's remember Act 1 and Act 2. When the shepherd threw the party, the party was in honor that the shepherd had found his sheep. It wasn't in honor of the sheep being found. It was that the shepherd had restored his sheep to the fold. When the woman threw a party, she was celebrating that she had found her coin. The party that the father is, show, is throwing here is not in honor of the prodigal. It's celebrating that the father had restored his son. And so the older son was saying didn't want any part of honoring his father. But again, the father, in another display with the prodigal son, he had a display of costly love to the outsider. And now he leaves his friends. He leaves the party and pleads with the older son, the insider, that's there. Both brothers have already put their father through humiliation and dishonor. And the father has every right to display in both cases, indignation, but he doesn't. He goes out and pleads with his son. Now, back to the audience, okay? Scribes and Pharisees. In the parable of the lost sheep, the Pharisees were represented by the 99 who stayed in the fold. In the parable of the lost coin, they were inside the house, but they weren't lost. Thus far in this third act, the audience views of both sin and salvation were authentically represented though the father's response was a shock. But this authentic representation of their views is now drawing them further into the story. It's as if at this climax of the story, there's a person in the play representing the audience, and he's talking. So Jesus, as the narrator, the playwright, is talking with the audience, the scribes and Pharisees, inside the play as the father and the older son. The playwright has just entered the story, has just entered the play, so that he can argue directly with the audience. The father, the son says, all these years I've served you. Now wait a minute here, all these years I've served you. For one thing, everything he does, he knows now is going to be his. He's working for himself, he's not working for the father. Every, every minute of work he puts into this farm is going to come back to him when his father dies. So if he doesn't work and it's worth nothing, he has nothing. But if he works his butt off 
and it's worth a whole lot of money, then he's got a whole lot of money. He's working for himself. And I've never disobeyed your command. He has the audacity to tell his father, I've never disobeyed your command in the middle of dishonoring his father in public, of subjecting his father to another humiliating spectacle. And you never gave me a young goat that I could throw a party with my friends. So is the older son also wishing he could dispose of his father's assets the way the younger son did? Is he wishing his father were dead so that he could do with his stuff as he pleased? Is his heart not so very different than the younger son was? He's dishonoring his father. He's wishing his father was dead. He's distant from his father. And he wants a party with his friends. Those are your friends out there, not mine. We see this complete distance between the older son as well. And that furthermore, if he was so concerned about his father's property, because he says, this son of yours, couldn't even call him his brother, squandered your money. If he was so concerned about his father's money, why didn't he speak up back there in the original when the younger son asked? Why didn't he say, whoa, whoa, wait, this is not going to happen. This is wrong. We cannot do this. Why does he wait till now to act like he's concerned about his father's honor? Act like he's concerned about what gets done with his father's stuff. As I said, um, he says, you killed the fattened calf. This party was not thrown in honor of the son. It was thrown in honor of the father. All of heaven celebrates because God restores us to himself. God loves us so much, and he is so intent, so focused on restoring him, that when he restores one child, being an outsider and insider, he celebrates because he's restored somebody to himself. That when it's the, um, where it says safe and sound, or restored him, the word is shalom. He restored him in peace. So the father now, in another act of love, the father understands the older son's lostness just as much as he understood the younger son's lostness. He absorbs his son's anger. This is why I, I'm like, I'm not afraid to show anger at God. I'm not, I'm not, a, I, God absorbs our anger. It's not, it's not that, that big of a deal for him. Job had a blistering anger. And God never criticized him for it. He did question, oh, where were you? You really don't know as much as you think you know. But what Job did was right in God's eye. God, Job was considered righteous in God's eyes, and what he did was right. God absorbs our anger. So this father leaves his party, and he goes out to plead the son. He starts, and he says, son, it's beloved son. And he's in, the older son didn't even bother to say father, nothing, no term of endearment or respect, nothing. He absorbs the anger and processes it into grace again and extends, pleads with the older son. Son, everything I have is yours. It always has been. You can relax. The fact that your son, young, your younger brother, is found and is alive changes nothing between you and I. It doesn't challenge, doesn't threaten your place in my heart. You are still there in my heart, just, as much, just the same place you've always been. Jesus has painted a very good picture of the distortions, the perception that those in the crowd faced about his ministry, their opposition to his ministry. And this play, well, parable, but I've called it a play, allows the audience an objective view of themselves. And it offers a brilliant analysis of what a self-righteous spirit, how it can poison a heart. Now, the end of the play has come. The end of the telling has come but he leaves off the ending. So you remember I said in act one, it's all tied up neatly in a bow, 
But if you look at the chiastic, the poetic structure of the act of scene two, the ending is left off. He's inviting the audience. So your brother was restored. Now what about you? Your brother accepted being found. Your brother is restored to intimate fellowship. Now what about you? My love for you is just as strong. It's never changed. It's never wavered. I'm willing to humiliate myself for you just like I am for him. Are you willing to accept this offer of a relationship? Are you willing to accept being found? The scandalous love the Father has for each of us compels him to run through to us, to humiliate himself, to act in an undignified manner and take on our shame, absorb our anger. It's a costly love that reaches out to both prodigals rebels and the religious, the outsiders and the insiders, to restore us to himself. The gospel message, hear me here, the gospel message is not so, not about, so much about how much we've sinned, but about how much God loves us. It has much less to do with the depths of depravity that we can sink into, but more the lengths that he will go to to restore us to himself. And our only, I hate using the word job, the only thing that we can do is respond. And the response is left to us. What are we going to do in the face of this kind of love? So maybe you're like the younger son. Maybe you've run from him for a long time. And you've had to do things, you've done things your own way. And you've never really experienced that kind of love. And this is the first time you've heard of it. And you're ready to respond to that kind of love and be welcomed into the arms of your Savior. Maybe you're like the older son, with or without the religious spirit, but you spent your whole life in church. You have lived a good life. Uphold your character is without blemish. Everybody thinks you're the world of you but your relationship with the Father is still distant. And you've watched other people experiencing it, and you're wondering, could I ever experience that kind of love with the Father? Maybe you've experienced it, and you just need a refreshing, maybe a fuller understanding, maybe a fresher revelation. The, the prayer team can come up. Maybe you're wanting the lo- that kind of love to so permeate you that it transforms you. Whatever the case may be, I invite you to come forward and have someone pray with you. If you're ready as the older son, you're done, being, you're done running, and you're ready to come home to a father who loves you so passionately, he's done everything possible to draw you back into relationship with him. Or maybe there's some other reason for distance. I invite you to come. Don't, don't walk out of here without having encountered his love. Father, I ask, thank you. All I can do is just thank you for your love. And I thank you that you have, you love us so scandalously. And all we can do is respond to that love and surrender to your love.